0: So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames The Godfather's One and Two But not so fast, we've got a podcast We like that too We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Welcome back to the We Like That Too podcast, coming to you almost live from the Bon Vivant International Media Center, which is also Brad's basement. So, joining me, of course. The head Bon Vivant himself. Hey, everybody. Mr. Keith and Lou. Welcome back. And the studio audience. Yay! We got hey, a studio we, audience hey, with hey, us today. We have a studio audience down here at the yeah. Bon Vivant International Media Center. See if we can keep them under control. Yeah, I know. Sometimes the wine starts flowing, and then it, they get out of control. Stuff happens. It does. Yeah. It
1: does. So what's going on? Not much. You know, summer is uh, upon us and uh, enjoying the weather. Of course, summer in Missouri, you got to deal with the humidity, so... It's not um, the heat, it's the humidity. Yeah, it's not and
0: the humidity. And we have them both. It's not the hate, it's the stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> when, it's, when, it, when both numbers are 90, it's not very no, pleasant not outside. Yeah.
1: But that's all right. I I love the warm weather, and uh, after our winter of discontent, it's nice to be outside oh and enjoying man. some of it. We don't need any more friggin'
0: polar vortexes or whatever. Vortices?
1: vortices. It, I think, is vortices the plural of vortex?
0: Vorticexes Okay. We'll go with
1: that. Look it up. We make up words all the time here. (laughs) Well,
0: you know what? A long time ago, somebody did, or we wouldn't be talking. That's exactly right. So somebody had to figure out a word for something. Make up words for stuff. We still
1: make them up. I'll tell you what, I'm excited about today's show. I am too. Because we've got a guest today that you and I have never met before. We have not. But we're excited about it, and we have a mutual connection. And that's how we got uh, linked up with, with this guy. A few episodes back, if uh, our Bon Vivants may recall, we had a guest, Dingani Beza, who is a Hollywood actor from central Missouri and has gone out to L.A. and is working and trying to work and uh, trying to break through. Uh, he's been involved in several projects, but it was a great episode. If you didn't get to hear it, go back and listen if to you, it.
0: If you didn't hear the one with the D-man, let me tell you. Oh, some we, great stories. We, <laughs> we, Oh, my gosh. We, <laughs> some hilarious Hollywood stories. Well, let me just tell you. He he unloaded some good ones yeah, on us. And, uh, yeah, he did. It's worth we, a listen. Because that was a fun show.
1: But Dengani told us uh, – you know, we, got, we got to talk about agents and managers and that kind of thing, and Dengani told us about – someone he worked with, and and Cole Payne, who happens to be a Central Missouri guy. Russellville, Missouri, right down the road. So Cole Payne is with us today, and Cole works in the industry, the entertainment management industry, and lives and works in Hollywood, but came back for uh, the pandemic to duck and cover here in Central Missouri, so we are lucky enough to have him in studio today. Cole, welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me. Good to be here.
1: So what we'd like to know, Cole, is how does a kid from Russellville, Missouri, which is farm country, no doubt about it, right up the road, it's God's country. Yep. How do you make it to Hollywood and get involved in the business you're involved in? Tell it's us a, your story. It's a
2: great question. It, it very much is farm country. That's why I was a little bit late today. Kind of got caught up on Grandpa's farm. No.
1: <laughs> farm work comes first, yeah, man. You got to get that stuff
2: done. Once you commit, you don't want to upset Grandpa. No, that's, that's for sure. sure.
1: <laughs> that's for sure. But.
2: Well, you know, being from Russellville, a population of 807 people, I never really thought the movie business was a career path. I just always loved movies. And then a couple of my buddies that are also from here uh, in Jeff City, uh, the Lathans, Kyle Lathan and Jeremy Lathan. we're moving out there and so I just said, I'll road trip out with you guys and uh, hang out for a week or so. And I was out there and I was like, well, you know, the weather and the women and I don't smoke weed, but if I hear it's the best stuff out there. So two out of three, right? It wasn't bad. So I decided I had to, had to get out there. I actually, um, ended up majoring in entertainment management down, yeah, in, down yeah. in Springfield. I saw uh, that on your bio down
1: at what is now Missouri State. Yes, was it Missouri it State? Was Southwest
2: Missouri okay, State yeah. when I was there, but now yeah. Missouri State. And that was just because like got to a point where I need to choose a major. They had entertainment management, I guess, because Branson's right there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I used to throw, speaking of my grandfather, I uh, used to throw big field parties in his field to where it was an actual – getting into production before I knew what production was, because, you know, I kind of learned and adapted every year. And I'd say my first party at about 15 years old, I had about 100 people. And at my last party at 19 years old, I had about 2000 people out out in their field. (laughs) So, that's not
1: That's not a party. That's a
2: concert. That's –
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: so you had to cool. uh definitely adapt and handle the production to where yeah. you have to, like, build fences, set up lights, set up stages, you know, things like that. So I was just kind of getting – and because I did that, I was like, oh, entertainment management, you know. So kind of got into that just as sort of a – Hollywood story you know I was out in a bar one night shortly after I got there and this English woman's like so what do you do you know because that's the LA question sure wants to know if, if you can somehow help them
0: are, are you somebody <laughs> I, I definitely not, not really
2: now and I definitely was not at the time I just said, just moved here from Missouri, majored in entertainment management. And she had a talent management company and she said, you want to intern for me? And I said, sure. She said, show up on Monday. And, you know, I think I just remember like one of the first questions she asked me, she's like, do you read Hollywood Reporter or Variety? You know, which are the movie industry trades. And I didn't even know what they were at the time. (laughs) So, you know, like that's that's where I started. So uh, an unpaid internship for about. I don't know how many months. And then when I finally said, you know, this is about 60 hours a week. You need to start paying me. I think I got $1,250 plus commission a month. And uh, I just, for one reason or another, never got commission.
0: So, so what were you doing? Major gopher gopher stuff? Anything? I mean,
2: it was really that to running the company. Really? It was just like one of okay. those things. Cause it was a small company. So it was just really, for most part, it was her and I. And then she also started dating her now husband, who was a writer um producer. And he actually had that uh, Rome series on HBO. That oh, wow. Oh, wow. At the time. That's a big deal. Yeah. So he moved in and, and our office was out of her house. So I was also kind of working with him at the time as well. And so, yeah, it was literally like go get me coffee at Starbucks to help him move out of his storage unit, which is sort of jumping to the end of this story. But after about six times, I was like, I'm not a mover. And she Mm. said, if you don't like it, you can leave. And I did. Um, But it was a great experience of getting thrown into the fire and having to figure it out, you know. So, yeah, I got – and that's where I got my first experience in producing. Uh, She had optioned a book. And we had attached – or she attached uh, Jennifer Lynch to it, David Lynch's daughter to adapt it and direct it. And so I just was on board for that whole process and going out and pitching it to financiers. And that was like my first dip in the toe in the water to producing because that was before the now husband moved in or before they even started dating actually. So. That was my first taste at producing. And ultimately I was supposed to be an associate producer on that. It never ended up happening, but I, you know, left before it, you know, got further down the road. Who were some of the clients that she had then that she worked with? Um, we actually, we had a lot of predominantly English clients, um, some other Europeans, um, Roger Moore. Yeah. James I was Bond. going to,
0: I had to ask you wow. about that one. Yeah. Cause, uh, I'm a huge Bond fan and I yeah. saw that and I was like, Oh, James Bond! Yeah, that's I, way cool. You yeah. have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't
2: think we booked him any jobs because I think he was like living on a yacht in Monaco at the time. So of course, just, of he, course, wasn't, yeah. of course he was, he wasn't super yeah. interested wow, in well, leaving said funny. yacht, you yeah. know, yeah. except yeah. for, you know, but we did, I think we booked him one job, which was a voiceover job with like an animated film, yeah. you know? So, cool. so Roger Moore, um, and you know, just him calling the office, you know, it was very interesting, you know, to pick up the phone and James Bond's on the other <laughs> line.
1: You think somebody's gigging you at first? It's like, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. You're right. Sure. Moore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My, yeah,
2: another, uh, another English, or I guess I should say Welshman, uh, was John Reese Davies. Oh yeah. John, the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah. And Great actor all too. All kinds of stuff. Phenomenal actor. Know, and I was lucky enough to, during that was the Lord of the Rings time. So, you know, we got to go to the... The Oscar parties, nice, and nice. Parties yeah. and that kind nice, of stuff
1: I always wondered what kind of special effects they had to use on him because he's a big guy, yeah. but they but he plays a dwarf. Yeah, he, he was on his yeah. knees yeah. Uh, most of the shoot. Interesting. He,
2: he was also tree beard the tree. He did the voice, the main okay. tree, so he did that role too. So he's a right. great voiceover actor. Yeah, he's so, yeah. a good actor. I've yeah. liked him for a long time, and so. he's a
0: fine
1: welchman,
2: too. Yes, yes. fine yeah. welchman. Very proud to be. Well, a we've
1: got we're gonna we're gonna hear a lot of stories before the end of this uh, podcast. So we're looking forward to that and and hear more of your journey. But you know, the podcast has a subtitle, Cole, and it's uh, one bottle, two friends, and three top picks. So before we get too far down the road. We're gonna drink a little wine. I was about to say when yeah, can, when can we, I drink? This? No, we've got this uh we've got this wine sitting in front of us. Brad, what are we drinking today?
0: We are drinking a lot of wine, Keith. Yeah. I've been dying to say that.
1: A well, lot of wine.
0: You and I, uh, thanks to Matt Green uh, at Barvino, who is our bottle sponsor, who is our, our, our one of our number one sponsors, uh, and it says Lotta, which I thought was just being cute. Like I bought a botta box, you know, I bought a box of wine. No. His name is Andrew Lotta. His actually name is, is Lotta.
1: L-A-T-T-A. And
0: yes. um, we had the good fortune uh, during one of the things that, that sometimes you have more flexibility, as you know, during the pandemic. We actually did uh, our wine club with Matt and uh, Andrew Lotta was on and visited with us. And the interesting, Keith, little factoid is that Matt Green in Jeff City, Missouri, is one of the number one sellers of a lot of, of wines. Yep. And this particular vineyard, is it's small. I mean, it was founded in 2011. He does Syrahs. He does a GSM. That's, that's phenomenal. That's, that's yeah, he does fantastic. a red blend. That's great. He does a Grenache. He's got a couple of white wines that he does. I mean, this is not a big, big producer. But uh, the other one that he does is the one that uh, you had said that you were a Malbec fan. And so we have a Malbec for you today well, from Andrew Lotta. Just, uh, you, uh Walla hey, Walla. Hey Thank you, Andrew. Yes. Walla uh, Walla. From Walla from up uh, in Walla, 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 Washington. Lotta Lotta from Walla Walla. Lotta Lotta from, from, from Walla Walla. So, yeah, so let, let's enjoy. Let's yeah, see what we yeah. got. This should be, you know what? I haven't had a bad lot of wine. No, I haven't either. And as a matter of fact, and Washington has kind of a characteristic either with their Syrahs or with their Zens or with this Malbec of having wines that are uh, a little peppery, a little spicy. Uh we've got a good friend of ours that we had on the podcast that is uh now has a, a winery in Walla Walla and he is one of the wine gurus of the world. He lives in Kansas City and we did a two-part interview with Mr. Doug Frost who has a place called Echolands right. out in Walla Walla and yep. uh he's a big fan of the uh of the the peppery sort of you know, give me a, give me a wine and a steak kind of, uh, thinking. So what do you think here, Keith? Gore? They caught
1: me mid gulp.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I love
1: the, I love it. the color on it. Beautiful deep purple. Some really nice legs on this wine too. And it actually has a little bit of a brown tinge around the, the rim, the halo, which, you know, tells me that it's probably going to age well and, um, do we have a vintage on this one?
0: I believe it's a
1: 2014. 2014. So this has been in the bottle for a while. This, this is been, nice.
0: This has been getting that happy. may be where the
1: brown's coming from. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it is fruit forward on the on the palate to me, but it's got some great balance to it. A really nice balanced wine, uh, not too fruity, not too acidic. What do you think?
0: What do you think, Cole? Yeah, all Cole? that
1: stuff that you guys are saying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm, so I'm, here's
1: what we tell people, Cole. We're not wine connoisseurs, we're wine drinkers. That's yeah, right. But we do that, like to talk about it and, uh, and, you know, try to, uh, describing wine in an audio, uh, podcast is a little, uh, counterintuitive, I think sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but that's alright. We have fun yeah. trying to do but it. We put, yeah, we right. put
0: the bottle on the page. Yeah, the stuff. bottle you and can, so you can go and you can webpage. find it. And this is probably not one of, one of our cheaper ones that we've interviewed cause, or reviewed cause it's about a 40, $45. Um, I feel special though. Well, but it's, it's a, it's that's a really, an, that's it's an approachable a, price point it's, though. That's it's a really nice, it's a nice bottle of wine. And, and given the fact that Lada doesn't produce just, yep. you know, tons and tons, it's, that price is gonna be a little bit higher. So,
1: when did you open this? How long has it been open?
0: About an hour ago.
1: Okay, because this is really soft and really smooth to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This does not have any tannin on it, no bite at all.
0: It's got great mouthfeel. Yeah, it really it's does. got a
1: really, really smooth mouthfeel, really easy to drink. Yeah, yeah uh, I like this. That's very good. Yeah,
2: yeah, me too. As I said, I'm not a connoisseur by any means, but, you know, obviously most of the Malbec I've had is like Argentinian, and, you know, I don't. I can't, I'm not gonna, I don't drink this and think, oh, this wasn't made in Argentina. Like this is right up there with the good Argentinian right.
0: Malbec. Well, stuff. that's why I thought it'd be kind of fun because, um, usually folks that are Malbec fans are Argentine Malbec fans, you know, from Mendoza yeah. and, and that region down there. And, uh, they produce some, some amazing ones. Some but, grape, you know, yeah. They're growing, great they're, they're growing Malbec grapes in, in France and all over the place now. So yeah. it's a, it's a hearty grape. It's one that's a little bit easier to grow. You can grow it in Washington. You can grow it in Mendoza, you can, in Argentina. So others are. So So being in California though, I've heard they, they grow just a little bit of, of grape out there. Yeah. Do, have you made trips – Uh, You're in L.A., you know, being a little north.
2: I'm pretty terrible that – and as far as California, you know, I've spent a lot – most of my time in Los Angeles, which is really a shame because, like, you know, you can drive a few hours and you're in wine country and you can drive an hour and you can ski and you can drive two hours and be in Tijuana and it's like, you know. You don't have to be
0: in Tijuana. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You you can There are things
2: that you can see in Tijuana that you can't see in other places. There are some things you can't unsee in Tijuana. You can't unsee. But yeah. um, I've done, um, you know, Santa Barbara and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. I haven't went completely north, to be honest. But
0: the Santa but. Barbara area is a is a hot bed now because they, they're yeah. doing what they call um, a lot of urban urban winemaking mm. and stuff, where they actually source the grapes and they actually produce the wine. In town, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and
1: if you get if you get south near San Diego, Temecula is a new. Yeah,
0: it's not a new wine
1: area, but it is a new um, Appalachian It's California's newest mm-hmm. Appalachian and it's they're doing a lot of a lot of wine there. So, yeah,
2: there's yeah. Uh, several wineries in Malibu, you know. So, yeah, went down there and had some with the fancy people, but uh, yeah, I always wanted to go. Like we talked about for buddy's bachelor party. Actually, Kyle Lathan, he came out. To L.A. for his bachelor party, and we were originally talking to go about going to hitting Northern California, but we ended up at Big Bear instead. So we did the did the skiing instead. Instead of
1: small world, Kyle and I did some community theater together before really? he nice. when he was growing up here. He went to school at Elias, right? That's correct. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Kyle and I were. We're on stage together a couple times, so yeah. he's back. Great, great guy on
2: stage with him again.
1: So tell us about the what's the man the entertainment management program at Missouri State. What did that prepare you for? You know, I, I'm not familiar with that degree. I don't know what yeah. the coursework
2: is like. So, right. Well, I'll be completely candid. I, I actually didn't end up getting my degree. I was I completed three years of school down at Springfield, um, and so I had only kind of started getting going towards it, I'd say my last year, there's two classes that were sort of most beneficial because I had like no production experience about like physically producing a movie or anything like that. I didn't do any of those type classes. I had a legal class that helped me with the contractual stuff. Then my first boss, she was actually a, a solicitor from London. Um, who graduated from Oxford with a law degree. So I had some basic knowledge of contracts um, through that class and then going through them with her, you know, so sort of, so it, it was a good start. It was like, that's one thing I wasn't completely thrown in the fire on. I did know some legal terminology and things like that. And then in, in all honesty, the other one was just sort of, I can't even remember specifically what the class was, but I just remember they properly taught you how to write a letter and to write an email and a memo and those types of things. And not that the entertainment industry is the is sort of the paramount place for (laughs) communication and and written language (laughs) as far as that goes, because it's just gotten worse and worse over the years. But there were several people that would always say, like, you have the best emails that I have that I get. So I was like, that's something like it stood out. Yeah. Yeah. So that helped me. Because it's just like, you know, it's where the communication, text communication is today. It's like if somebody's not interested in something, if you're pitching a client or a show or a movie or something like that, they're not interested half the time. They just don't respond. That doesn't mean they won't respond to you. They'll respond if they're interested in something, but just won't. And like, and if you do get a response from like an agent or something like that, it's usually like. Two to five words, you know, it's like these big companies. I think they have word budgets. Basically. So, <laughs> you know, so those, I would say those are the things. And then actually like doing those parties actually prepared me because it's like, I had to think about these things. I, cause to me producing as far as like physically producing, like say a film that's not rocket science, you know, that's just figuring stuff out and fi- being efficient. Now the creative part, obviously there's, there's that side of it, but it's like actually like, putting stuff together and bringing a film together a lot of that came i think from just me actually throwing these parties and like when i'm just somehow talked my way into producing my first movie just paying attention you know to what was going on on set yeah. what
0: would you charge for your parties uh, $5
2: all yeah. right
0: yeah. well you you probably figured yeah. out that that, that was going to cover it cuz oh yeah it uh, I never,
2: what I also figured out is never be by the gate because I know so many people. I yeah. by the gate. How do I, how do I say, yeah, you have to pay $5 to get in my grandpa's field. But Everybody, my did. friends are there, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. Right. So after you decided to part ways with your, your first intern opportunity that led to your, your first kind of job, mm-hmm. what was the next step for you?
2: I went around and I met with people that I'd met and said, you know, I'm really trying to get into producing. I'm not looking for a handout, but if you got something, I think I could be helpful. And one of the first meetings I took, I got handed a script called Downloading Nancy. And at the time, uh, Holly Hunter, William Hurt, Stellan Skarsgård, and Roda Mitchell were attached. And I think they only needed 300,000 and were filming in a couple months type deal. Well, then actor availability changed, money fell out because I went out and actually found like $100,000 through a friend of mine who owned a sushi restaurant pretty quickly. And then so I was in, you know, but then other money fell out and actors changed. So cut to four years later, um, I was brought the main financing to the fiction. The picture. I think I brought a million one to the table out of the million seven cash that it cost us. I mean it was about a three million dollar movie total. We used some Canadian subsidies and tax incentives and stuff like that for the remainder of the budget. But that was my it wasn't the first movie I produced, but it was the first movie I took on to produce on my own, I guess, out of the first meeting. Where'd you shoot it? Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Regina, Saskatchewan. Wow. During like... What fe- time of year? February. Oh! No. So our first baby. <laughs> yeah. and I mean, it went to a complete cast change, too. It ended up being Maria Bello, Jason Patrick, Rufus Sewell, and Amy Brenneman. I love Rufus Sewell. And also Michael Nyquist was in it. All right, um, so
1: don't burst my bubble. Is Rufus Sewell a cool guy?
2: He's fantastic. Because he's... Guy. I really love Rufus Yeah, Sewell. no, Rufus is a really great guy. I think he's so versatile. Well, that was that was also... You know, I'd been in LA, and obviously, I was in my early twenties, and I was going out and partying, and you meet famous people and things like that. You know, and I did a couple little bitty movies. You know, before I took this on, or at least I did one little movie and half of another one that I finished after this. But um, this is my first experience with like dealing with going to an, I had to get a passport. I had to get a rush passport. I'd never been out of the country before. Oh, well, I'd went to Mexico for spring break, but at that time you didn't have to right. have a passport. Right. You know? Right. So this is the first time I had to get like, I had to pay 500 bucks to get a rush passport to go to Canada. So this is my first time getting a passport and going out of the country like that outside of Mexico. So I'm dealing with tax incentives and and dealing with cast at that level and working with them at the same time. And it's just like, you know, like the three main Amy Brenneman was there for about a week, but it's like the three main ones who was also fantastic were Maria Bello, Rufus Sewell and Jason Patrick. They're all fantastic actors, but completely like Maria Bello was the character the whole time. Jason Patrick was the character all day on set, but as soon as it was rap, he's like, hey, let's grab a beer at the Irish pub, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. To where like Rufus is completely in this dramatic, you know, dark scene. And as soon as he <laughs> steps out of it, you know, he's joking around with you or stuff like that. So Rufus is a really fantastic guy. I actually ran into him. Well, I mean, just uh, probably a few months before I left Los Angeles uh, at Home Depot, he was there, you know, shopping for cool. stuff, you know, and, and you've probably seen he's obviously continued to work on great TV shows yeah, and yeah. things like that.
1: I I think, you know, he is th- – the range that he has, you know, you see him – he plays malevolence so well in mm-hmm. something like uh, Knight's Tale and then, you know, you see, uh, amaz- see him in Amazing Grace and the abolitionist, you know – 1700s London, trying to abolish sla- the, the slave trade in England. Completely different role, oh, yeah. completely different look, cont- you know, just I, I love Rufus Sewell. I, I think he's one of the yeah, best was, actors working today.
2: It was a, it was, a, it was a real experience, you know, because I also like on that film. Our director was Johan Rank. Um, Johan was a that was his first feature film. Well, I th- it might be his, his only feature film still to date, but he was a big music video and commercial director, like Madonna, Robbie Williams, yeah. you know, like big bands. And he's actually from the Swedish pop group Stockaboo. Uh, so he started directing their... uh <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. So don't look at <laughs> me like that. I um, started directing their music videos, but he did uh the Chernobyl series for HBO. Yeah. He directed yeah. that whole thing. Yeah. And it was, it was cool watching that and like seeing similar shots and things that we had in cool. our film. Um So just, and then Christopher Doyle was our cinematographer. Christopher Doyle did all the Juan Car Wai movies, all the early ones, like uh, 2046 and um in the mood for love and all that stuff. So it's like, one of the potentially best cinematographers in the world, one of the top, you know, music video and commercial directors who's also an amazing narrative director and these great actors. It was kind of hard to go on to my next like small film, you know, or go yeah. back and finish my $120,000 film that I was doing with my buddies that we financed with our friends and family that I wasn't finished before I left to go do this movie. So it was just night and day difference.
0: But this would be considered an independent film.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, like, if you say, look, look at Wolf of Wall Street, you know, that's a $50 million movie. That was an independent film. Right. So independent film has a range to sure. where, like, literally. Sure. It's like small business. Yeah. I've, I've <laughs> yeah. sold a feature film that was made with, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, but the cash budget was $5,000. I didn't produce that. I sold it for some people, but, like, what they did for $5,000 was amazing. So, I mean, you can literally make a feature film for nothing. And, and especially now, you know, with all the technology, which is a good and bad thing because too many of them are being made, you know, yeah, you should have to pass a test, I think
0: maybe. But, um, (laughs) well, our friend Tom Baker, uh, down in Springfield or we've been on his podcast, he's into this independent film world in the Springfield area. And it's, it's a fascinating world to me because when you finish downloading Nancy, then you have to do something with it. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about, okay, now do we enter this in every festival in the United States? Right. Or are we going right to Netflix? Or are we going to try to get general distribution? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've paid this. It would be kind of fun if it made some money. And people saw it. And, sure. and people saw it. Yeah. Well, and we know. Talk- and it says you, you went to Sundance, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But talk a little bit about you've got the product. Now, what
2: are we going to do with it? You know, back in those days, those were like where you could really finance films on on pre-buying or pre-selling territories. So I think, and I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure because you know I was 24 at this time, and the two kind of main producers that were with the project the whole time were just you know. Did not want me involved in stuff. Just put it that way, you know. It was kind of like you go over here and uh, little kid and We're gonna deal with this. And when I was like meeting with our Canadian producer and line producer, and line producer basically means you know who's in charge of the budget and stuff like that. She, they're in charge of the every line item in the budget, kind of deal. When I'm in there going through cost reports and expenses, they're just popping their heads in the door. Hey, what are you doing in here? Can we help you? I'm like, no, I want to talk to this person. You know, it's going to give me the truth. I think I'm pretty sure we turned down a million dollar pre-buy offer from Showtime just to get the cable rights at the time, just because we thought we're going to get into Sundance and it's going to sell for $20 million, so we don't want to short sell ourselves, so – And, you know, hindsight, that was a mistake, (laughs) but we did get into Sundance and, and that's a misconception that a lot of filmmakers have is that, oh, you get into Sundance and everything's okay. You know, you're going to make millions of dollars. Well, we got into Sundance and downloading Nancy is not a film for everybody. You know, it's a very polarizing film um, and people loved it and people hated it and there wasn't really in between and, but that's, was to be expected with that type of film. But we had some issues with some financiers that had kind of final say on what deals we could take. So we didn't get to take any offers right out of Sundance. And again, not that there was multi-million dollar offers. And that's part of the reason why I guess they didn't take them. We ended up having to close for like a $60,000 advance on uh, North American rights in the end. And that's for a $3 million movie. So that was not exciting. And that was right at a time where distribution was changing and people were doing what's called day and date releases, which is means you play a small amount of theaters at the same time you come out on video video on demand. And I think that it was just sort of an experiment and it didn't work out well, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Live and learn. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that was very much a dark drama like that was very much a festival film. You know, that's something you know that was pretty sure going to get into Sundance just with the the talent around it and the content, and it did, and it was a great experience. Um, and it's a great film that I'm extremely proud of. It uh, going to Sundance didn't solve all the financial problems.
1: Well, Cole, you've had the experience in your your history in Hollywood to see a lot of evolution in distribution pathways. You know from big screen to video, the numerous streaming apps out there and ways to watch movies that has evolved in the last few years, Mm -hmm. certainly with what we're just coming out of, hopefully with COVID, that changed everything. We talked with Gina Goff recently about her release of Senior Moment and how Mm -hmm. theaters were closed down. They wanted to have a theatrical release. She couldn't do it in California, so she had to adapt. Uh, you know, so talk to us a little bit about how you've watched that evolution and maybe where you see it going in the future.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just first and foremost when it comes to theaters, I think the theatrical experience is never going to completely go away. You know, I hope not. I I I really hope not. I think there's people like us that just enjoy the experience. You're right. Even though say all of Warner Brothers uh, movies are also on HBO Max now that they will still go to the theater and see those films. Um, refill, thank you for refill in the background. Refill, I needed that. Something that nice. was, that was not FX I brought my that. chauffeur you know, <laughs> sitting here in the studio audience, so I can have another glass. So I do think that's something that's going to be around. I do think it's going to evolve. Um So yeah, the the little movie that I was doing with my my friends uh, at the time that was like a hundred and twenty thousand dollar total budget, I went straight to video on demand um, with that, and at the time. DVD came out before video on demand and video on demand was still fairly new. And video on demand was just cable, you know, scrolling down, scrolling down a list on your cable. Right. So this movie was called two dudes in a dream with the number two starting it. So it was very highly numeric alphabetically placed on that list. Right. So I did a deal for the VOD. I've always just been like, I'm going to figure this out myself. You know, like if somebody can do it better than me and there's a clear path to that awesome i will go with that person i was like this is a little movie i'm just gonna shop this to buyers myself and so i got the video on demand deal and then i was talking to some dvd companies and they all wanted the dvd to come out before the video on demand and i was like no i want it to come out at the same time and they're like no no we can't do that and it's like i finally got this company to agree i'm like great you know and this was Without knowing it really was like a day and date release in itself, video on demand and DVD, which is pretty normal these days. You know, the movie comes out on VOD, go to Blockbuster, there's no DVD. Hey guys, where's the DVD? And it was just didn't happen and didn't happen. I ended up just terminating the deal and that movie only... You know, only lives on VOD, basically. This, this company was the first company to do independent films straight to VOD. Used to, you could get a good return on your movie by having it highly alphabetically placed on that list. Then when DVD started dying, you know, studios are like, we gotta get in on this. So now you're competing with the studio films. And so when I eventually started my own company, I did start a distribution arm to that company. And I thought like, cause I always like as a filmmaker, when I would do a deal with a distributor, they've got their pitch to get your movie. But then as soon as you sign that contract, they're not answering your phone calls or returning your emails. They don't want nothing to do with you. So I was just like, my marketing team is going to be the filmmakers. Like they want to do this, you know? So it's like, I'm going to acquire small films. Put them out on VOD, do some small theatrical for the right films, but enlist the filmmakers to be their own marketing team because nobody knows the film better than they do. But what you come to realize is that everybody doesn't have the same attitude towards that as I did at the time. And I mean, now I also understand that because you got the rest of your life to get along with because you're not a distributor and to essentially do, to do a self-release, there's a lot of success stories out there of films that have been self-released. There's a lot of them you never hear about. Because that has to be your job. That has to be the next two years of your life, essentially, to have a real impact. Because
0: you've your, got to be the marketing director. Exactly. And, You're going uh, on the road. Yeah, you know? yeah. You're shaking hands yeah, and kissing babies works. for your film. Hey, Bon Vivants! you know when We Like That Too was launched, we knew very little about what was needed to promote the podcast online. That's right. So we turned to Greg Arnold at GAA Consulting. GAA Consulting was a lifesaver helping us get things started. Greg is a small business owner who loves helping small businesses grow. He takes the time to listen to your business goals. GAA Consulting will custom design your website and create a digital
1: marketing strategy to help you reach those goals. Every project is tailor-made to meet
0: your small business needs and preferences. And Greg can teach you to manage things yourself or... You can hand things over to him, and he'll lighten your workload. You know, if your business needs help building an online presence, visit gaaconsultingllc.com.
1: That's gaaconsultingllc.com.
2: Custom solutions for your small business needs. And thanks to Greg for sponsoring the podcast. You know, obviously Netflix was extremely smart. Blockbuster, yeah. you know, could have done it, but they messed up. Um, Netflix has been great. I think, what was it called the the Paramount Accords where studios couldn't own their own theaters? I think, well they just did away with that a few months ago. So I think ultimately where it's going is is the theater experience is going to be more like going to Disneyland. You know, it's like Disney's going to own their own chain of theaters and it's going to be Disney movies played at these theaters. And I think it's going to be like not full on Disneyland experience, but they're going to have sure. like, the Disney stores. Yeah. and they're going to have yeah. little. Merch and everything, emerge, yeah. Little rides, Retail, inside yeah. The thing, you bet. I think that's going to be. Part well, it makes of it, sense, you know? yeah. And I think independent films are going to be fine. But I mean, in all honesty, it's just like you know, to get an audience out in theaters for independent films, it's tough. And, I mean, you think, like, say, New York or L.A., those are the movie cities. It's probably harder there, yeah. you know, just because everybody's in those movies or been invited to those movies and things like that, you know. So it's – I think there's a way to do it. And I think the main problem with independent films and distribution, and this is – again, I can talk about this all day long, is that there's just a lack of awareness for independent films, you know. And that's something as a producer, you know, you put your blood, sweat, and tears into this film – And then you hand it over to this distributor and then they drop the baby. You know what I mean? And you're just like, I just spent nine months carrying this baby and I birthed this baby. And now you dropped it on the floor. They don't have the capacity or the money either to market it. You know, it's like they don't have some big marketing team. They got like one person. If you're lucky, they hire an outside publicist and pay him 20 grand. And it's like, so how are you going to get any sort of placement or awareness it's like those those films that you hear about that have taken off you know like they caught lightning in a bottle you know is Dude. that is that
0: why the, sorry Keith. no it's all right is, it, is that why the festivals are so important at least it's a great outlet for being seen by i don't mean to sound this wrong way but by people that really count i mean mm-hmm. film critics people that write about film and so it seems like You've got a two hundred thousand dollar film. You know, there's the expense of of entering the 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 festivals, and there's and it may not get accepted. You know, it's not like an automatic thing. But it seems to me that you know, if you're a young filmmaker and you can you can hit some of these festivals and do well, at least you've got some some chevrons on your sleeve that says, "Look what I did at the L.A. Film Festival." Well,
1: I'm I'm curious too about things like uh, you know. IFC Channel and uh, Sun, you know the Sundance Channel, where they're they are featuring independent films. So if a movie lover like myself, mm-hmm. you know, at least I have access to seeing those things where I wouldn't otherwise. And we're pretty lucky here in Central Missouri. We have Ragtag up in Columbia that is a an art house, an yeah. art film house, and and Capital City, City, City Cinema Caldwell where City we Cinema. get stuff. Yeah. But it's still, you know, they they can only show so much, so yeah. often.
2: So. It's sort of like you said, the right people saying it, right? Unfortunately, and that's another thing young filmmakers don't understand is like, there's only a handful of these festivals that matter. And, and unfortunately, if you overexpose your film on smaller festivals, that hurts you when it comes to selling it and distribution. So it's, I'd be careful, you know, if you got a short film, play it everywhere. Absolutely. But if you're trying to sell a feature film and make money, you got to be strategic about it. Try to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And, you know, for the United States, it's Sundance and then maybe Tribeca, maybe South by Southwest. And and I don't mean maybe like those are great festivals. And yes, there's buyers there. If you're a genre film, the industry term for genre sort of means like horror, like edgy action, you know, just just the genre kind of. Is obviously different genres, but you're kind of talking about the horror thriller kind of stuff when you say genre. But you have, um, fantastic fest in Austin, which is a really fantastic festival. The guys that have the Alamo draft house theaters, they're the ones that put that on Tim League and those guys. Um, it's a, it's the funnest festival I've ever been to. They have filmmaker critic boxing. <laughs> so it's like they take a critic, they just like <laughs> rip some filmmaker's film, and they yeah. put them in a boxing ring together. Like oh, my gosh. Together, like stuff like that. <laughs> That's it's, hilarious. It's, it's honestly one of the funnest festivals I've ever been to, and I've been to the big ones. Maybe some that.
1: filmmaker's dreams come yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And there's another one in Canada called Fantasia. Um, that's right in those, one of those fanboy festivals, but then you got Toronto, you know, film festival, you got can, you got Berlin yeah. and then it's just like, sure. Like Venice, you have to be a huge film, you know, but that's not our festival that you count on to sell your film. But like, it's literally those hand, And then there's more of those fanboy festivals. Um, there's uh sitches in Spain and stuff like that, you know, but it's, it's few and far between that festivals that actually matter and that buyers are paying attention to.
0: You've got True false which is, True, for, True for, false for is, documentary is a documentary-based. Yes. True yeah. false
2: is one of the good yeah. documentaries. Especially festivals. for especially yes, for, for documentaries. Sure. It's
0: made
1: a name for itself in the documentary yes. world. yeah, yeah. yeah. People yeah.
2: people know about True false It's yeah. outside of Missouri for yeah. sure. It's a great festival yeah. when it comes to docs. So.
1: so tell us a little bit about your work with certain on the man of the talent management side, because that's mm-hmm. how we got connected with you through yeah. Dengani. He said you're not his agent, you're a manager. So, what's the difference, and how does that look in the real world?
2: Right. Well, I mean, just I started out in the talent management, you know, company as I mentioned, and I got into producing through that. And then when I started Traverse Media in 2013, I brought on my friend Jeremy Lathan, who was at a talent management company called Raw Talent which was a small talent management company, but they had really great clients. They had uh, Emma Stone, Anna Ferris, Brad Garrett, Penn Badgley, Jamie King, um, Leslie Bibb. I mean, I can just go on. You know, They had some really great, really great talent there. Just a quick sidestep before Traverse Media and before just being on my own, I joined a German finance and production company called Instinctive Film. And then I opened up the North American office for that company after about, Two years of bouncing back and forth with predominantly being in Germany out of Berlin. And then when I opened up the North American office, I said we should start a talent management company. And I know the guy who should run that for us, Jeremy Lathan. And then when I left that company a little while later and I said, Jeremy, let's start our own thing, Traverse Media. Uh, that's when we started working with Dingani. We're a small company, so it's like I'm involved, you know, but I'm not out every day pitching the clients and sure. stuff like that. That was more more Jeremy's expertise. Um, we started to we tried to kind of actually shift more into writer directors because we're a production company and we could be more hands on, even if that was just helping them develop their script more. To where it's like actors, you know, we go to this audition. Hopefully, I know somebody that's producing it or directing it or something like that that can put in a word. You know, the real difference between an agent and a manager is like, I think a manager should be more hands-on and be more personally connected to the client and have less clients. You know, I think in my humble opinion, and there's probably going to be some agent out there that never is going to want to do business with me again. But if you got a solid manager There's really no point in having like a lower level agent. You know, it's like the big ones, like they have the weight that because because agents are bottom line, you know, they don't they're just pitching. They want to make money. They got a bunch of clients, you know, stuff like that. If they got something they can sell, they're great. But it's like as far as developing clients and things like that, it's not really their area of expertise. Now, that said, I'm not going to say that there's not a small boutique agency out there that isn't because I'm sure there is, you know, that acts probably where I'm saying a manager should be doing this. But there's probably agents out there that that do that. I just have not personally worked with them.
0: I don't see why you'd. Well, Ari Gold.
1: There's Ari Gold.
0: Yeah. I don't get why you'd have both. That's, that's at a certain level, you know, two different percentages that coming out of your pocket. Yeah.
2: Well, it's, I think, you know, for instance, you know, say we shared some director talent, some filmmaker talent with CAA, you know, the biggest okay. talent agency in the world. And I think that's why you have both because they're the biggest talent agency in the world. You know, so they've right. got a lot of stuff going on. So you need a manager kind of in there saying, "Hey, we should do this." Now, of course, it was you know this was um, very talented upcoming filmmakers, and for instance that I'm speaking about, and they did this amazing. They're visual effects people and in th- 3D design artists. Like these are guys who they've worked on Transformers, like that kind of okay, stuff. They're yeah. high level of visual effects, and it, they they raised sixty thousand dollars on Kickstarter and shot at 25 minutes short in their loft in downtown LA. And it looked like it was $5 million easily. Yeah. So we, you know, shopped these guys around as talent. And I, I mean, I chased them for years and I finally got up, you know, got them signed. And, and Jeremy was a very helpful in that as well. You know, we put them with CAA and then it was like, when we met with CAA, It was like, hey guys, we're producers on this movie. We don't have to be the main guys, but at least executive producers, kinda like that. And there's a lot of managers that do that just to get the credit and just to get the money. But I'm a, you know, real producer. I was interested, why I'm interested in being involved, to make sure that the movie is done and done right, and so I can be on the inside track. And unfortunately, is like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it's like when we had a deal on the table, it's like, well, you know, that's not going to work. And I was like, all right, it's the first deal. We'll let it happen. We won't stand in the way of anything. But then cut to right now, which is now years later, and that movie's still not being made. Yeah. And I think yeah. the clients are a little upset that we weren't more on the inside track. So point being is, is like managers can kind of get in there and stay on top of the agents and kind of things like that. But – until, if you have a good manager as any talent, actor, writer, director, I think until you're at a bigger level to get with one of those big ones that just has the weight, you know, it's not really worth it if you have a good manager and maybe you have the good agent that you don't, you know what I mean? And maybe, yeah. Cause there's some of these management companies that are just as big as some of these agencies, you know, and so you can, you could go that way too, where you had a small agent and a big management company. The legality difference is, is technically as a manager, you're not supposed to be negotiating contracts and pitching jobs. You're just supposed to advise them on their career, which every manager pitches people and looks at contracts and gives their two cents. And also an agent can accept money for a client where a manager can't, like the money has to go to the client or And they pay you or they sign a release to give to the agent to pay you your commission directly.
0: Somebody comes to you. You've got a young actor. You've got a young director. They come to you. What do you look for in them? I know what they expect out of you, which is to get work. You don't probably take everybody. That comes through the door. No. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what yeah, yeah. what are you looking? What are you, what are you looking for? Because this is a this is a mutual thing where if both of you are successful. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, what do you look
2: at? Well, I mean, I think that's evolved, you know, throughout my career. You know, when we when we were still instinct the North American branch of instinctive film that then transitioned into the first iteration of Traverse Media. You know, we had a regular office and an office building. And that address is out there on the internet. So you have people just showing up, dropping off their headshot and their resume or their reel or stuff like that, just Make, walking Making in the, the
0: rounds, as they used to say, right. yeah.
2: And then, you know, as L.A. does, a new owner of the building bought the building and wanted to double the rent. And they had already increased the price of parking twice in the first month of ownership and <laughs> stuff like that. And at that point, that's when I was just like, am I – staying in distribution or getting out of distribution. Cause as I kind of mentioned earlier, we started the small distribution label and it was one of those things where I was like, okay, this thing with like enlisting the filmmakers isn't working. So we need to raise money or stop doing this. So at that point I didn't know whether I wanted a bigger office or a smaller office. And I was like, well, in the meantime, let's rent a house for the pool because my lease of my apartment's up, I'll live there and that'll be our office. Was only a year lease, and I was like, "Perfect!" Which turned into me then renting three more houses after that to be my living and office because having the house at the pool was like way better. So, point. Long story short is, or long story wrapped up is, I never changed our address on the internet. <laughs> to the place I was living at because I did not want those people showing up at my house. Yeah. And it's, and I don't mean to give such a generic answer, but it's really just talent that stands out that you haven't seen before, you know, and that has a unique point of view because, you know, I think when we, we were trying, like we think this person might be able to make money, which is a very valid reason to sign a client, but that didn't work out nine times out of 10. But also, sometimes that unique point of view didn't either because we kind of thought we were going to do a little niche of like say these Sundance filmmakers you know because I had had uh, produced a few films that have been in Sundance and Roger Mayer who we brought in as our head of production he actually used to be working the projection department you know um, in the film room and stuff at Sundance for 13 years and knew all these guys who's like a library of film knowledge you know he's forgotten more about films than I'll ever know um, we brought him onto the company. He had produced several Sundance films as well, and we had these connections to all these like great filmmakers that had had Sundance movies. And they will sit there and all tell you, no matter how artsy their film was or their style is, they want to play the game. They want to make a living off being filming, and they and they do obviously. They want to make a living off being filmmakers, but they're not willing to play the game whether they know it or not, a lot of them, some of them are, some of them are really fantastic. Um, I mean, I'm working with a filmmaker right now named, uh, Vincent Grasshaw. He's part of the group of the coat wolf filmmakers. They did a film called bellflower that I believe played Sundance in 2013. If I'm not mistaken, he produced that film, but then went on to direct some of his own films that have played South by Southwest and the LA film festival when it still existed. And those guys as a whole are extremely talented filmmakers, but they're like, no man, we're not playing the game except Vince, he's like, yeah, I'm going to still work with you guys and do this, this stuff, but I'm going to go off and have a career out of this as well. So, so, you know, it's like, it's, it's also, it's not just talent all the time. It's just something. And it's like, my hat's off to those people. If they can just make their art films and be happy and, and still maintain a living that's great. Yeah. But it's like as a manager, I couldn't make a living working. Or a, working po- or a
0: podcast. Yeah. Yeah. a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, well,
1: this has been very enlightening. I mean, I it's great to hear this perspective that average film lover like myself, we, we don't get to see behind the curtain very often. So it's kind of cool. So the third part of the show is three top picks. So we really went out on a limb on this one, so (laughs) uh, because we get kind of crazy sometimes, you know. And we could have done films and all that stuff, but that's kind of boring for you know. Also hard
2: for me to choose.
1: Yeah, I know it's 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 impossible. So the three top picks category today is three top childhood cartoons. Okay, now I I'll get into where I kind of waffled a little bit on this, but I did tell you childhood cartoons, so that's where we're going. So here's how it works. We always let the guests go first, and we'll do one at a time, no particular order or however you want to rank them, what your choices are and maybe why and why you chose it, that kind of thing. And we'll just kind of go around three times, and we do honorable mentions. We
2: cheat, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. if you've got those. You know, this was also hard. It is hard. It was hard. I'm an 80s kid. You know, like I was born in 82. So I grew up, I think, with some great cartoons.
1: Yeah. So I thought about this. You're going to bring a different perspective than Brad and I because we're of different generations. So this will be interesting. Yeah,
0: because they had just invented celluloid when when we started
2: watching.
1: Some of ours are black and white.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would just say the one that
2: I'm still kind of constantly reminded of. And it was just really predominant to where I was of an age where I remember like a lot about it. I have to say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Sure. Well, uh, that's a classic. I
0: mean, yeah. Our yeah. Kids. And no doubt about I, it. Yeah. I mean. What a was, franchise. Sure. Yeah, oh my gosh. What a franchise. And
2: it's because I still, maybe I shouldn't be saying this in public, let alone on a podcast that goes out to people, but I'm currently living in my father's house in Russellville still because uh, until I you know, figure out what exactly I'm doing next. But just going in his basement, there's still a ton of ninja turtles in there. <laughs> you know, so it's just like it's still great. it's still there. Yeah. Um and then obviously the live films that spawned sure. off, off I mean obviously it was a comic book first. Yeah. You know, which, you know, as a kid I didn't know, you know, actually. I mean I was into comics in You know, but not deep into comics to where I I didn't know about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic when I was a kid. But like Vanilla Ice and the live action movie, I mean, come on, you know.
0: Great choice. Well, and the difference probably you talk about marketing. These early ones that probably we have, they weren't thinking about merch. They weren't thinking about a spinoff. I've got one that I got one that got spin off to a movie, but I mean they weren't thinking about yeah. about some of that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, the Ninja Turtles definitely was an evolution. Probably was the second generation of some of the ones. I'm just guessing that. Oh, we, yeah. we, you and I are going to probably. Talk
1: yeah, about. yeah. So so when I started with mine, I thought I, I kind of looked at classics and things like and you know the Flintstones, the Jetsons, but you know some of those old Hanna Barbera classics. And the thing, you know, the thing I loved about the Flintstones was I didn't realize that the, time, the Humor was very adult,
2: mm-hmm.
1: actually. They were made for adult audiences because they showed them before feature films, a lot of them. And so the humor, a lot of times, is very adult. Kids didn't get it, but pretty Pixar is
2: capitalizing on that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yep.
1: As far as classics go, my, my first pick is Roadrunner and, Roadrunner <laughs> and Wile E. <laughs> Coyote. And it was a Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes production. It was actually part of another classic cartoon Saturday morning show it was a it was an installment Mm -hmm. it wasn't a standalone but it had a long life and the thing that I think is most creative about it is there's no words there's no words to Roadrunner it's all just action except for beep beep you know, and you can do that. That's a universal. You know, you know.
0: I, I admired Wiley Coyote because he didn't have any lines. Yeah, know? and as we get older and we can't remember lines, he's, he's, not, a he's, no, not, he's a quitter, not a quitter. He's not a quitter. No, because I'm that very much Transcended into my, you can, you know, you think into my childhood. You you, too. You, persistence, you, you, so. you'd think you'd get kind of bummed out of getting blown up that many times. Yeah. Time. So, so Roadrunner
1: was, was my uh, my classic <laughs> pick. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: I've got that an honorable mention. Oh, by yeah. the way, Cole, we cheat. That's so just know. just so you know, so my number three, and I did kind of take this in order a little bit. But do you remember Underdog? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember and, uh, too. There's no need to fear. Underdog is underdog here. Underdog is here. And who did? And who voiced that? Wally Cox. Wally Cox. Wally Cox. Wally, Wally Cox did yeah. that one. But I used to I used to play in the garage, and I would be Wonderdog. Because you know, he turned he, he'd go into the phone booth, you know, yes. because it was a shoe shine boy.
1: Mild there mannered shoeshine m- boy. Yeah, and there yeah.
0: had to be somebody that had to be saved. And so Don't worry, uh, Penelope, I'll save you. That's right. That it was Penelope. That's right. <laughs> and so um but yeah, Wally Cox, interesting, interesting guy. I tell you when you start doing some of the research on some of this stuff, the stuff you find out is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you know who Wally Cox's number one best buddy was? They were neighbors in Illinois, no. Marlon Brando. Oh, you're kidding. They were best – I mean they were literally best buddies until um, – Wally Cox died fairly early. He was like 46. Uh, he had dropped a heart attack. But Marlon Brando was was his best bud. That's and, an odd pair. Uh, and, and showed up at the wake and everything. and I was like – well, uh, that's interesting. Well, so anyway, well, one
2: of my best buds from LA was used to be. Him and some other friends rented a house up on Mulholland Drive and was neighbors with Marlon Brando, and he shared a driveway with. um Jack Nicholson.
0: Oh, and wow. so they
2: would get drunk and go over there and hit their little speaker <laughs> on the gate and <laughs> like say movie quotes to them and stuff. So yeah.
0: I'm sure they didn't find yeah. that annoying. Yeah. No, no, yeah. It's <laughs> weird
2: they didn't renew the lease on that house. How about so. that?
1: Underdog is a good one. Good class. Yeah. One. All right, Cole, what do you got next? What you
2: got? Well, uh, Inspector Gadget. You know, <laughs> yes. Was just like I was like, as a kid, you know, like, yeah. you just want those things to exist. You know, I want to have that hat.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just like yeah. I can literally fly
2: somewhere. Sure. So yeah, Inspector and, Gadget was a good
1: and one. developed into a movie with Matthew Broderick. Yeah, yeah that's right. I d- you know, I don't. I didn't see the movie. I don't know if it was any good or not.
2: But the other day, I was like reminded of Doctor Claw for some reason, and it's like I tried to find a meme on my phone because it was like during a text conversation I was going to send like a doc. There was none that I could find. It's kind of sad. Apparently, Inspector Gadget is not everyone's f- favorite so, cartoon top list. My
1: second one, I actually did everything I could to not pick this one just because I thought it'd be really cheesy, but I had to go with it because it just kept popping up in my brain and it was, uh, Scooby Doo.
2: Ruby Ruby Ruby. Popped in my head too.
1: And the reason was, first of all, it had a great voiceover cast with the great Casey Kasem as Shaggy and, uh, you know, it had the the magical mystery van and, and it
2: had, of course, Daphne. Because I, admittedly, you know, I watched Castlevania, and Netflix, and things like some anime stuff. And my girlfriend now, it's like anytime there's a attractive cartoon on, she's like, "You're a weirdo." You know? now, so yeah, I almost
1: chose Josie and the Pussycats but they just weren't popular enough but you know well. if you think about it Josie and the Pussycats were really happening
2: oh yeah group. I, I,
1: all girls oh, yeah. diverse they had it going on
2: i thought about that and those that,
1: outfits I, were exactly i thought i was like
2: <laughs> should i think of something that's like a little cool and off the cuff or should i just be like <laughs> yeah, these ones that I actually yeah, yeah
0: so i didn't probably, like them i don't think they i don't think they did their own music well oh, that was the wrecking Lip crew probably. Lip
2: probably the wrecking crew, wrecking
1: crew probably did that. <laughs> yeah, too. I think they, they did were. did the Archies and I the, they were the Monkeys lips, and everybody else. The
0: Archies. Well way to go Keith. Uh, did I steal yours? We yeah, double, well, of course, we double. And a lot. I, bet, I bet we do on the first one too. I think we will. Uh, yeah, but Scooby Doo, it was actually based on, I didn't know this, the loves of Dobie Gillis. Uh They said that was I didn't one know of, that, that was yeah, but again, it's a Hanna Barbera. Those guys, man, oh. they were the gods of Saturday morning cartoons. I would like they to had be their air. They had oh, no <laughs> kidding. They had all of them. But it was kind of interesting, you know. The other guy that did the the one that did Fred Fred Welker was actually a voice artist and did Garfield and the Smurfs. So, yeah, some of these people that voiced some of these cartoons really, really interesting to see what they did. Uh, Velma was actually Nicole Jaffe. She was a stage actress, but she was uh, in the original production as Patty in Good Good Man Charlie Brown.
1: Oh yeah, on, on stage
0: Bro- on Broadway on stage. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. So I mean, met Patty. And yeah. then the guy that did Scooby, he was one of the most famous voice guys in in the whole business. I mean, he did Astro. Yeah. He did. Rascro? Well, Rascro
1: and Scooby were the same voice.
0: He did Bam Bam. He did Boo Boo.
1: He did. Limited vocabulary. Huh? <laughs> well,
0: he, he stuck, with, he, he stuck with the short, short name yeah, motif. Yeah. yeah. But he did, he did, did a bunch of stuff. Yeah.
2: Okay. There's number two. All right. Uh Thundercats. Uh, like I had the sword. It like, you know, had yeah. batteries in the handle and it lit up and you'd put your eyes through the thing and. <laughs> Yeah, the Cats. hot Thundercat (laughs) chicks. You know, if I'm being honest,
1: no, no, I get it. So, so, Cole, maybe you can tell me was Thundercats part of or a spinoff of the He-Man universe, or was that not? I
2: I really, I don't know because that was it was tough not to talk about He-Man because I would actually say that like He-Man was probably my first original. Favorite cartoon to where it's like that was it and I had castle grey skull and I yeah, had all the yeah. toys and you obviously had that green tiger. Skeletor, awesome. great and
1: villain. Yeah. Gray, yeah,
2: and then the, you got that his castle and then pour the slime down on some of the characters. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't really know. The animation style is what makes me ask. Yeah, it's because they had the same style of animation, I think. But no, it's kind of funny. It's like I was watching the Castlevania animated series on Netflix last night (laughs) uh, before I went to bed. (laughs) Nerd alert. Yeah, and they have this thing where there's like a portal into another time and space dimensions. And it was showing these other kind of clips of these other worlds. I'm like – think these are other cartoons or at least other nintendo games i think you know so it's just like i was just thinking about something similar but i don't really know i haven't like went back you know
1: well before i get to my number one i'm going to do a couple of honorable mentions and the first one is the peanuts gang it wasn't a regular cartoon but their christmas special their great pumpkin halloween special For animated, you know, memories of my childhood. I'll always love the Peanuts gang. And, and then some that are, they're not from childhood, but they're, they're honorable mentions from the animated world are things like Rugrats, South Park, Family Guy, Simpsons, Mm -hmm. King of the Hill. Those modern day, they are adult cartoons, no doubt about it, but they are classic
2: yeah well speaking of adults and peanuts is like i also yes i'll still go back and watch those at halloween and christmas and stuff like that and it's like I think it's genius how they don't really have the adults in there. They have them because it's like it's unbelievable if these kids are running around without adults. But you can't understand their voices. You, you never wah, see wah, them. Wah, wah, like, wah, yeah, because yeah, that's as a yeah. kid, that's what you hear. <laughs> you know, you know, there thing like with your parents are talking. To you. Certain
1: certain movies that are like that too. You don't ever you'll see you never see a face of an adult. It'll only yeah. be the knees down or whatever. So. Yeah. But my last choice is and I probably we probably are gonna double on this is Johnny Quest. Johnny Quest was my favorite. First of all, the the style of animation was different than anything else out there. The opening sequence, the uh the intro sequence, not only with the da-dum, 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 da-dum. Yep. you know, and the you know, the Komodo dragons on leashes and the speedboat that smashes onto mm-hmm. the guys in diving gear and and Johnny Quest was just cool and Race Bannon was the man Haji was a loyal friend and Bandit it was just it was just a good so here's my beef where's the friggin Johnny Quest movie now i looked at this they've been trying to get a Johnny Quest movie made since 1995 and it keeps getting pushed down the road They've had several people that say they're going to do it, and the money falls to you. Just what you talked about. You know, you need
0: to get on this. Yeah, well, yeah I think we're holding you personally it, responsible okay, for this yes. Cole. Yes. Yeah. Cole,
1: this, get this, me a Johnny Quest movie. This is your Damn money. It. This is your money
0: maker right we're here.
2: way right. past time. It's like I could talk to Don Murphy, who's a producer on the Ninja Turtles movies and the Transformers movies. There you go. So, you know, but it's funny. It's like his company is called Angry Films, and um, you know there's a reason for that. You know, a yeah. lot of people don't <laughs> well, like. Somebody's
1: the, bought the right. You know. there, there are people yeah. who have the rights. It's, to
2: It's the rights getting hung up on stuff. Yeah. like is just yeah. so many times. Somebody is, owns the rights, and is. they keep saying they're going to do it, but because you can happens. also like usually there's some sort of clause in the contract about extending the rights, like if you film, if you go into production, so. You can go online, go on YouTube, by the way, and look up, like, the Fantastic Four movie that, like, I think was done by, um, oh, what's that company that does all the knockoff little, like, when the Transformers movie comes out, they do the $100,000 version of the Transformers <laughs> movie that, like, rips off the poster. I think they got hired to do a Fantastic Four movie by Fox because... They were about to lose the rights and they're like, all right, we're willing to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars, something to, so you can go on YouTube and watch a Fantastic Four movie that was just made purely to extend,
0: to extend the, rights the rights that they
2: never huh. planned on releasing, but somebody leaked it out.
0: Interesting. Well, that's interesting.
2: Yeah. yeah. So it's like that's, pr- you know, there's probably well, little things that they're doing to continue to extend the rights because they think we're going to make this thing, even though they should probably hand it over to somebody else.
0: But you I get think. this done, Inlo and I will kick in fifty dollars each. Yes. All right,
2: all right. Yes. Yes. Do do I walk away with At that fifty dollars tonight? At least is that
0: development funds? <laughs> Listen, here's the deal uh, well, with the, this podcast,
1: paper. Cole. You get paid double what we do <laughs> on this okay. podcast. P- so.
0: Papers will need to be signed. Yeah, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Keith, for the. You know, you're brilliant. You are you are a brilliant human being because I also had Johnny Quest. Yeah. Here is here is the most interesting factoid I learned, though, about Johnny Quest. Do you know who voiced Johnny Quest?
1: I don't. <laughs> Tim Matheson. Otter. Oh, you're kidding me. Otter
0: from Animal House. Oh, you're kidding <laughs> me. Was, uh, yeah. Wow. So I was like, yeah. But it ran uh, – the thing about that I also thought was interesting is that actually ran in prime time for uh, ABC – and I, I can't think of too many – there's not too many animated films or shows. And they only ran 42 episodes because yeah. they were – as you said, they were very stylized. But they were also very expensive uh, yeah. for animation at mm-hmm. that time. And they really uh, – they didn't really make that many. They syndicated it for years and years and years. But
1: Here's the most interesting thing I noticed. If you watched the Super Bowl two years ago, their animation of the players' portraits – Look like Johnny Quest animation. Really? Yeah, they had the, you know they had the carved cheekbones, you right. know that look like. It's a probably an app for that now, Johnny. Yeah, probably. probably there probably <laughs> is. But anyway, look look like, that's look John,
0: like Johnny that's Quest. That's the Johnny right? Quest artist. Yeah, I do have one As honorable was, mention because I had a cool experience. All right, I went Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny. I, I love the Bugs. Yes, but when I was in school, Mizzou, Mel Blanc came and spoke. Cool, which was amazing. He yeah. voiced. Almost all of the Looney Almost Tunes. Almost all of the Looney yeah. Tunes. Daffy Duck, and he was he was actually Dino in the Flintstones, and Barney, and yeah. and he did a he did a program up at Jesse Hall. Cool. And I took dad, and my dad laughed so hard I, it was embarrassing. <laughs> I heard Cox
2: hated him because of that Dino gig.
0: Oh really? Yeah, no, you're making that up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was, I still love the bugs and and uh, Mel Blanc was just he, he was, was so, so f- the program yeah. he did was so cool because because so he had two big screens and he actually voiced what was going on on the screen. Yeah, it was it yeah. was cool. It cool. was really neat.
1: Cole, thanks for being here, man.
0: We yeah. appreciate
1: it. We Like That Too is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of bon vivants everywhere. To get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We
0: Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because
2: we like that, too.
0: We like that, too. We like that, too. We like that, too. We like that, too. too.